Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. It's just a little more than a week to go before Election Day, but millions of votes have already been cast in the race for control of the White House and the United States Senate. And I'm starting to give real thought to how I'm going to watch the returns a week from Tuesday. What will the enormous number of mail ballots cast in a pandemic mean for the returns we watch once the counting begins? I'm really pleased to be joined by one of the premier experts in the field of the American election to give us some guidance. David Wasserman is the House Editor for the Cook Political Report, for whom he analyzes the House races. He's served as an election night analyst on the NBC News election night decision desk for the last six cycles. And his work has been featured everywhere from Fox News to C-SPAN, CNN, NPR, and the New York Times. David, it's a real honor to have you on, especially this close to the to Election Day. Welcome to 14th and G. Thanks for having me. Well, as I sort of previewed, you know, with so many mail-in ballots outstanding and so many different timelines and procedures for counting them state by state, how much are we actually going to know election night or even the next morning? Well, it's all going to come down to the Sunbelt states that are likely to report their votes first. And... You know, I'll be watching when the polls close at seven, Florida like a hawk. Uh, We're likely to get pretty full results from Florida, North Carolina, and Texas before we get full results from any of the upper Midwestern battlegrounds. And as much crap as we give Florida for hanging chads in that infamous Bush v. Gore recount in 2000, it could actually be the best indicator we have early on election night of what the heck is going on because it does have a robust infrastructure for being able to process and count a large quantity of absentee votes quickly. In 2018, 32% of Florida's voters cast their ballots by mail. That was by far the highest percentage outside of the West. And so they're simply used to this. And I'll in particular be watching Sumter County, Florida, which is the villages in North Florida, the, the largest retirement community in the state. The median age in that county is 69 years old. And In 2016, 84% of its votes were cast in advance of election day. And although we can't ignore the, you know, 16 or 20% of votes or so that we're expecting to be cast on election day, which are likely to be much more favorable to Trump, I will be looking at the first batch of results that's likely to to be reported there shortly after 7 p.m. In 2016, Donald Trump carried that county 68 to 29% on his way to winning Florida by a point. In 2018, Senator Rick Scott, then governor, uh, won Sumter County 71 to 29 percent on his way to to winning the Senate seat by a tenth of a point. And you might say, well, you know, it's such a Republican county. Why would it matter? Well, the margin matters. And the polls today show President Trump underperforming considerably with seniors. And this is as this is the best test in the country of whether that pans out to be true. So if we see an initial batch of votes from Sumter County, and there are around 75,000 votes counted, which is what we might expect, Joe Biden is in the high 30s, like Trump's only winning them 60 to 39%, then I would consider that catastrophic for the president. And, uh, you know, he might top out with the election day vote at only around 65, 35 in Sumter County. Well, that would be a pretty catastrophic loss of support relative to, to, to 2016. And I think we could be reasonably sure that, uh, that Biden uh, is on his way to winning Florida. And without Florida, Donald Trump can't win a second term. 
If on the other hand, we see the first batch come in and it's more like 66-33 Trump, then I think we're headed for a very close night in Florida. And if Florida is close or if it's leaning Trump by a point by 9.30 or 10 p.m., we're simply going to have to wait for some of the states in the upper Midwest that don't have the infrastructure to, to process and count their mail ballots quickly. We may not know the full results. Well, we certainly won't know the, the full and certified results for weeks, but we may not know the outcome uh, of the races in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania with clarity for several days. You had a great piece in the New York Times earlier this month. You, you've referenced it a, a little bit on, on the county outlook. And you had 10 bellwether counties to watch on election night. Uh, put Sumter County, Florida in there. I think you had Pinellas County. My former uh, place where I lived for a while, New Hanover County in North Carolina, Vigo County in Indiana, uh, which has voted for the winner in every presidential election since 1956. Uh, what are the earliest of those counties you'll be watching and, and, and where, uh, where are the other counties you're focusing on in, in the early going? Well, as you know, uh, Vigo County is one of the first poll closings in the country because Indiana starts reporting votes before 7 p.m. But unfortunately, I don't think Vigo is that great an indicator uh, anymore because I could see Donald Trump carrying it this time without winning the, a second term. Um, it has culturally moved to the right and I'll be carefully watching Pinellas County, Florida as well. You know, I mentioned Sumter, but Pinellas is also very heavy on seniors. It voted narrowly for Trump in 2016. Joe Biden absolutely has to win it, and probably by a decent margin to offset the expected, you know, underperformance of Clinton in Miami-Dade County. So I'll be watching to see, you know, does Biden win Pinellas County by something like five, 10 points? We're also, of course, going to be watching um, Erie County, Pennsylvania. We're going to be that uh, clearly that's a battleground that both campaigns have paid a lot of attention to with both candidates going to Erie in the last several weeks. Uh, we're also going to be watching uh, New Hanover County, North Carolina. Democrats haven't carried that county since 1976. And its most famous export might be Michael Jordan, but it's got a real mix of retirees, of uh, military personnel, of Hollywood types, because keep in mind the film and TV production industry that has exploded right. there. And it's got, you know, a number of up, upper middle income suburbanites. There's now a Whole Foods market in Wilmington. So, you know, it has kind of all the ingredients for a very close race at the top of the ticket. And we'll be watching to see who wins that. It's probably a place that Biden needs to flip to carry North Carolina. And same for uh, the Senate race there with Tom Tillis and right. uh, Cal Cunningham. Yeah, and North Carolina may be at the tipping point of Senate control. Dave, do you place any confidence in early exit polls? Uh, they've been so off so often for so many cycles now, and I wonder if they're of any value in, in a universe where so many ballots are cast before Election Day. Well, it's important to make the distinction between uh, – you know, the early vote data and exit poll data and actual election results. Those are all very, very different things. Right. So, you know, before the election, we're going to continue to see all of this early vote data flying around. And look, Democrats are already getting very excited by the historic numbers they're seeing in the early vote. What we know is that we're headed for a monster turnout in 2020 and that both 
parties' bases are highly engaged and motivated to vote, just on, on different timelines. The Pew Research Center found that Democrats have a 55 to 40 percent edge, or Biden does, among voters who plan on voting early in person. Uh, Democrats have a 69 to 27% edge among uh, voters by mail. And then election day voters, 6331 Trump. So look, it's not surprising that Trump's voters are following the president's orders essentially to vote the old fashioned way on election day. And that's something that we have to kind of price in when we, when we see all this data on the early vote. Now, when it comes to the exit polls, I, I don't think they serve the function that they did 10 or 20 years ago. We, you know, we who are going to be at network decision desks on election night are go going to be getting waves of data, um, at, you know, most likely at 5 p.m. that attempt to, to tell us what's going on. But really, uh, because so much of the vote is being cast in advance of election day, the, the only way that we're, we're going to be able to go about it is to conduct a, you know, a poll that's typical, to, that's similar to any typical poll out there of how voters have cast their ballots in addition to interviewing people on their way out of polling places. So I don't think it'll tell us much new at 5 p.m. on election day about what's going on. And exit polls have led plenty of people in the media astray before. Right. Uh, I, would, <laughs> I would caution everyone, just wait until the polls close until we get hard data. Because yeah. uh, that's going to tell us the story potentially pretty early on, on um, election night. You know, we're also obsessed with with knowing uh, what's going to happen before it happens. You made a you had a prescient piece in 2016 in which you detailed how President Trump might lose the popular vote and, and win the Electoral College, which was exactly what happened. And, and that was largely reflected in the final national polls between Trump and Clinton. But I haven't heard a lot of great explanations for why the state polling was so off in 2016. The Clinton campaign never seemed to be aware of trouble brewing in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And similar picture, a better picture, admittedly, for Biden in the battleground state polling. But why is that polling going to be more accurate this time around, do you think? Well, we don't know that it's going to... Uh, to, to be on target. Uh, but we do know that a big problem in 2016 in state level polling was the chronic undersampling of whites without college degrees. And a lot of pollsters at the state level did not weight their samples by college education because up until that point, it hadn't been that politically meaningful. Mm. Democrats and Republicans were doing about as well among whites without college degrees as they were doing with, among whites with college degrees. That all went out the window in 2016 when Trump broke through with white non-college graduates and they behaved essentially like a, like a different ethnic group altogether. And so what we're seeing this time is pollsters are almost universally, not quite, but most of them um, are waiting by college education to try and get a sample that reflects you know, the, the real balance in their states. Now, of course, what the, what the true balance really is, is open to interpretation as well. You can base it on census data of who's showed up, shown up to vote in the past. Uh, but overall, one thing I've noticed from looking at polling errors in the last two election cycles, both 16 and 18, is that polls have underestimated Republican support in the Rust Belt and the Great Lakes states 
they've also underestimated Democratic support in the Sun Belt. I would not be surprised to see Joe Biden win Arizona by more than he wins Wisconsin. Interesting. So that gets into the again gets into the question of of demographics, of party realignment. So much focus in this cycle on suburban women as a as a key demographic. Is that the key swing demographic? Is it is it non college white males? What are you looking at that might determine this election? So there are two demographic groups where we've noticed a real breakthrough for Joe Biden uh, versus Hillary Clinton. The first is uh, seniors. And when we, when we like, look at the demographic splits in an average of live interview national polls, Donald Trump is pretty much you know, at the percentages he was in 2016. The difference is that uh, Joe Biden is winning pretty much the share of votes that went to Gary Johnson and Jill Stein in addition to Hillary Clinton's votes, which explains, you know, which, or which leads to his, his larger margin. But the one exception to that rule is among seniors where Trump's number really has gone down since 2016. In the final polls of 2016, according to my colleague, Nate Cohn at, at the New York Times, Trump was winning seniors 49 to 44%. This time around, Joe Biden currently is leading seniors 53 to 44 on average. And that's quite a a shift, both from 2016 and from this September, when we saw Biden's lead at only five points among that that group. So, you know, that's one. And then the other would be blue-collar women, blue-collar white women in in the Great Lakes states. And these are predominantly non-evangelical, non-religious women who may have liked what Trump had to say about trade and immigration in 2016. They may have deeply disliked Hillary Clinton and ended up voting for him reluctantly. Well, these, a number of these voters went back to Democrats in 2018 because they don't want popular provisions of the ACA overturned. And now in 2020, this shift to a Supreme Court fight uh, has highlighted the differences between these women who do not want to overturn Roe v. Wade and the Republican coalition. It's kind of driven a wedge in the Trump coalition. And we started noticing the gap widen in the presidential race around the time of the Supreme Court vacancy. David, you referenced uh, 2018. I'm I'm always curious how off-year elections or congressional cycle, how that impacts the presidential cycle. What what did we see in 2018 that gives us an indication of what we're going to see in 2020? Well, it tells us that it told us that interest was way high. I mean, we had historic midterm turnout in 2018, and I think we'll have record shattering turnout in in 2020. It told us that there is a continued evolution uh, of of the Sunbelt towards Democrats, particularly in in Sunbelt white collar suburbs. You know, the, the House seats that Democrats flipped from red to blue in 2018 were predominantly suburban seats outside of really blue metro areas. So Northern Virginia and the LA suburbs like Orange County and, uh, you know, North Jersey, the suburbs of Denver, et cetera. This time around, we're seeing Republican House seats at risk in what I would call second order suburbs. So suburbs of, of traditionally conservative metro areas, smaller metro areas like Cincinnati, Omaha, St. Louis, Indianapolis. These are all places where Republican House seats are at risk because Trump's numbers there are considerably worse than they were in 16. And actually the, the piece of 
electoral real estate that is most likely to flip from Trump to Biden, in my opinion, is Nebraska's second congressional district in Omaha. Well, David, our good friend Bruce Melman and many others say you're the best Twitter follow on election night. I wonder who you follow on election night. I don't follow anyone on election night because <laughs> I, am, um, I have a social media blackout. Uh, <laughs> I'm under contract for the NBC News Decision Desk. So we're looking at the hard data and making calls. Right. Well, I'm not going to ask you for specific predictions unless you'd like to offer one. But broadly speaking, status quo, blue wave, red wave, something in between. Right now, we're a lot closer to a blue wave than, uh, than a scenario where Trump wins another term. And, you know, the, for all the talk of the potential for polls to be off, I mean, they could be off in, in Biden's direction. After all, in 2016, we know that late deciders broke in favor of the, the candidate who represented change, and that was Donald Trump. They could break in favor of the candidate who represents change in this election, and that's Joe Biden. So, I, you know, if I had to guess, I think Biden wins the Great Lakes states in play by a little bit less than the polls currently indicate, but he wins a few Sunbelt surprises. Well, David Wasserman, thanks so much for joining me today. Good luck on election night, and thanks so much for being on 14th and G. All right. Thank you.